Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome. CC. Hello and welcome. One, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Hello and welcome to episode number two of The Documentary Life, a podcast that sets out to inspire and educate each and every one of us on what it means as well as how to best lead a documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and I want to thank you for listening to this show and for living your own documentary life. If you're tuning into this podcast, maybe you've listened to the first show and have decided to come back. And for that, I am very grateful. You don't have to be here. There are a zillion other podcasts to listen to, not to mention a ton of other things to do, the least of which might be making your film. So for this, thank you for coming back. I do not take you for granted. The cool thing about podcasts is that you can actually be doing other things while you're listening to the show. Okay, you probably can't be making your film while listening to the show, but you can listen to me while you're out on your run, in the car waiting in traffic, mowing the lawn making dinner, changing your kids' diapers, whatever you may be doing, and you may actually be sitting down and listening to the show, though I suspect those kinds of radio days are long gone, I want to thank you for listening to The Documentary Life. It's only the second show, so I'll ask you to forgive any rustiness. It's been years since I was behind the mic. But if you stick around long enough, I think that you're really going to like what this podcast can offer you, especially over the next two weeks, where we'll be getting right to the heart of this show which is about educating and empowering you to live what we call a documentary life. If you haven't yet listened to the first podcast, a documentary life is basically a take on this idea of living the dream. In this case, your documentary dream. It's an attitude. It's an approach to living out your passion of documentary films. These next two weeks, we'll be releasing more shows than we'd normally do, so as to give you a better idea of what to look forward to in the near future. Along with this show, I'm releasing a second, which is a conversation with special guest filmmaker John Perosi, who will be discussing what it's like filming overseas in a developing country, including with one's family. You can download this directly from our website, www.thedocumentarylife.com, or from iTunes by searching for The Documentary Life in their podcast section. Next week, I'll be releasing two more episodes, one episode entirely hosted by myself, and the second, another conversation episode with an industry person, this time filmmaker Lydia B. Smith, who will be discussing the importance of a grassroots campaign for the independent filmmaker. In the future, this show will run bi-weekly. One show will be led by myself, where I'll be discussing a particular topic of documentary filmmaking, as well as answering your emails, while the other show will be a conversation with a documentary-related guest. Thanks again, and now let's continue on with episode number two of The Documentary Life. One of the things that will regularly come up on this show is the idea of inspiration, being inspired. The show itself is, in large part, centered around inspiring all of us, whether it's to be better filmmakers, whether it's to better embrace our creative selves, live our lives in more balanced ways. A big part of what this podcast sets out to be is inspirational-based. I plan on speaking with people who've inspired me, and in turn, I believe, will inspire you. I mentioned a couple of individuals moments ago, for example, filmmaker John Perosi, who inspires me to tell the stories of people in Cambodia, filmmaker Lydia B. Smith, who inspired both Steph and I to take some calculated risks as we built our grassroots foundation for our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia. 
Again, my conversation with John Perosi is available for download now, and my conversation with Lydia B. Smith will be up for download one week from today. So I thought that I might start out today's show by discussing who and what has inspired me to lead my documentary life. When I first became interested in film and maybe thought of that as f- film as something that I wanted to do with my life, it wasn't, ori- it wasn't originally as um, a documentary filmmaker. I wasn't really that into documentaries. And this is, you know, throughout the bulk of the 90s is when I was really getting into film. And I thought back then that I always dreamt of being a feature film director. In the 90s, you might remember, it was all about this idea of an independent film movement, um, which is something that I I got heavily into. Some of the names um, that you would recognize, you know, the Gus Van Sants, the Oliver Stones, the David O. Russells, the Hal Hartleys. Of course, Oliver Stone wasn't necessarily an independent filmmaker, but he was telling stories in a bit of a unique way at at that time, certainly not in a typical Hollywood uh, model. I mentioned Gus Van Sant's name, and this is before I even lived in Portland. Of course, Gus Van Sant is synonymous uh, these days with Portland and has been for a good 15, 20 years. He's not originally from here, I don't believe, but he has been based out of Portland for for at least the past couple of decades. But anyhow, at any rate, I was I got super into Gus Van Sant, or at least one particular film was really uh, important for me, and it was kind of a game changer. I remember going to see the film My Own Private Idaho. You might remember this film with River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves, and then a host of other people that I had never seen before, which was wonderful for a 20-year-old just kind of discovering um, film and the power of film um, as a as a way of telling telling stories in in a grandiose, if you will, fashion. And and at that point, I'd been used to you know Hollywood film upon Hollywood film, and seeing something like My Own Private Idaho, which was this um, almost uh, almost dirty. Uh, gritty way of seeing a film and experiencing a story which is about um, homeless and and hustlers in in Portland, Oregon. Again, starred River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves, the only names in the film at the time. Um, And then again, a host of characters who were unrecognizable to me. and the the beauty of that is then you you know one would go on to find out the, when they started to research the film at all that most of these characters were not necessarily even in the film industry they were people who were were local people um, and they were people who were living on the streets and they were brought in and they were part of this film and it was a, a, a way of storytelling a way of filmmaking that I had not been accustomed to seeing a film like My Own Private Idaho really um, certainly opened my eyes up to the possibilities of different ways to create cinema. I mentioned Oliver Stone's name and his name is important for me back then because of films like Platoon, uh, Born on the Fourth of July, Heaven on Earth, sort of his Vietnam trilogy, if you remember that. Um, it was important for me because of the subject material being Vietnam um, and the Vietnam War, um, which was something that I was delving heavily into even back then in my 20s, not really knowing that where that might be headed and how that might reveal itself much later on in my life. That part of the world would become massively important to me, as you know, and massively important to my work and the kinds of work that I really would become passionate about. Films and filmmakers like these guys really inspired and influenced me. But this idea of film and filmmaking or being a film director still felt 
very unattainable somehow until a film which came out, I don't know, maybe around 96-ish. And um, maybe you listeners can correct me on that or I can go back and research uh, again. But it was a film called The Last Broadcast, which was a film that was produced and directed by filmmakers Stephen Avalos and Lance Whaler. And uh, this film went a little bit under the radar. I feel like it's pretty underappreciated. But it came out just prior to, you guys remember, The Blair Witch Project, of course. And it was one of the films that was talked about in conjunction with Blair Witch uh, because it was a bit controversial at the time because it it appeared that perhaps the ideas and the storytelling um, that was happening in the Blair Witch Project, which of course became one of the most successful independently financed films of all time, the way the storytelling occurred, the story itself um, seemed to come uh, in, in some arguments uh, uh, directly from a film like The Last Broadcast. But what was important to me, and I loved the story, I, I really, really got way into this film, but one of the things why this particular one was inspirational or game changer for me was it was the first ever digital film to be broadcast via satellite to five cities at once. Digital film being the key component to that last sentence. I mean, this was huge for me. Digital technology made me really believe for the first time that I could be a filmmaker. Suddenly, filmmaking became accessible to me. Right around that time, other names and a particular film movement became known to me and really started to come to the surface in film communities. Lars von Trier and Tomasz Winterberg, a couple of filmmakers from Denmark, um, who came out with some landmark films at that time and were behind what is known as what would be known as the dogma film movement. You might remember um, films like The Celebration or Breaking the Waves. These were huge for me. Monumental, again, in showing me the possibilities of digital technology. Now, those films would be theatrically presented in film. So they were shot digitally. They were shot with digital cameras, and then they were transferred to film. That was a big thing that was happening back then. Um, watching these films, uh, this, the way the stories were being told was incredibly liberating, um, this way of storytelling. In many ways, they were very documentary-esque with the sort of what would become known as the shaky cam. But of course, that was made popular years before in French cinema and even in some new wave German cinema. I mean, I just kind of called it verite like everybody else. But but this sort of aesthetic would become pretty known and would become used greatly not long thereafter in videos and even Hollywood feature films and TV. Certainly this sort of style of... um, movement with the camera, this handheld movement. Um, in terms of the dogma uh, film movement, I got super behind that. There's, you might remember there was, I remember there was like this, these sort of rules that were set out, the uh, the laws of chastity, the rules of chastity, I, I can't quite remember, but they were essentially sort of a top 10 rules of filmmaking that these guys um, had come up with one night. And, and, and this was how they had to make their films. And, and, and these, these rules were, were very, very much in line with this idea of make the film with what you have and make it now. Um, it was very anti-Hollywood. It was 
Um, no artificial lighting. You used the lighting that was there in that moment. The same went with props. Um, no guns were to be allowed on um, in the films, um, which was this idea of like, let's tell real stories. Let's tell stories that we can all truly relate to. Yeah, it was this, again, it was very liberating to watch this style of filmmaking. And again, the the digital technology used is a very, very important component um, and super inspirational to me. Now, what got me into documentary films? What inspired me to do documentary? Believe it or not, working on one was what inspired me. I've mentioned in the first episode, and I'll probably talk about it or refer to it many times um, over the course of future episodes, episodes, a film called Bomb Hunters, which uh, is a film that I worked with another gentleman on. He hired me to work with him for six months shooting in Southeast Asia, and then he would hire me to edit the film afterwards. Uh, Bomb Hunters was about a group of villagers who were digging up old mortars and bombs and rockets from 30 years of civil conflict or the American bombing during the Vietnam War, and they were taking these these bombs apart, whether it be with a propane torch or a hacksaw, and they were separating the TNT um, from the metal and selling both on the um, the scrap metal uh, trade, if you will, and this was how they were making their living. And so we spent six months in Cambodia telling these people stories, telling the stories of the culture, working in another culture, completely rocked my world. It completely, again, this was another game changer in my life because this is what opened my eyes up um, to the possibility of documentary films. Again, uh, prior to that, I had always thought of myself as, um, or at least my dream at that time, was to be a director in narrative films. And this was something that uh, really, this was the key moment or key moments or key year, let's call it the key year, that sort of changed um, my thinking in terms of the type of filmmaking and the type of stories that I that I might see myself um, um, doing. And so documentaries became something that I entirely gave myself over to and immersed myself in and really haven't stopped ever since. Other specific films and filmmakers who have inspired or influenced me, uh, Werner Herzog was definitely uh, a big name. Uh, I loved the way he could, and I was inspired by the way that he seamlessly in his career seemed to go back and forth between documentary and narrative films. That was something that's very attractive to me. Um, I still very much aspire and plan on being able to do both both types of films. I want to be able to do documentary and narrative storytelling. Ironically, it was a documentary about the making of one of his films, Fitzcarraldo, that inspired me the most. There's a film called Burden of Dreams, and many of you have, have probably seen this. Uh, Les Blank was the documentary filmmaker. Les essentially spent... Um, the better parts of even maybe even a couple few years um, while Herzog uh, got his film Fitzcarraldo, which was all shot down in South America while he filmed that film. Of course, um, that's, you know, there's there's Herzog and then there's his actors, leading actor Klaus Kinski. Um, those are historic conversations that kind of um, there's it's legendary what transpires between the two of them. And, and you see that um, in Les Blanc's Doc, Burden of Dreams, which is again about the the making of the film Fitzcarraldo, which you don't get me wrong, love Fitzcarraldo, but um, it's Burden of Dreams that I actually will watch over and over and go back to just to watch and see Herzog in these elements, to see him in developing countries, to see him, as he says, in the jungle. I, I, I love when he says that in the jungle. 
the chaos in the jungle. Um, love it, love it. It's it's so amazing. If you haven't seen it, it's wonderful film to watch. Wonderful to experience. Another film, not unlike that, is a film called Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Yes, um, another film about the making of a film. This, in this case, apocalypse. Now. Um, I must be drawn to films about the filmmaking journey. It's inspiring to see others sort of against all odds being able to to pull off these monumental tasks or, or the monumental task of making a film. Who inspires me now? A documentary filmmaker like Rikti Pan, um, Cambodian filmmaker, Academy Award Cambodian documentary filmmaker, again, who also does narratives, by the way. So there is definitely a bit of a theme here and an influence and attraction for me. I guess now that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this now as I speak to you, I definitely gravitate towards filmmakers who do both doc and narrative. Ritty Pond, um, who actually is, uh, we were honored to be able to interview him. So his voice is is going to be throughout our doc, Elvis of Cambodia. He is known for films like the Academy Award nominee documentary, The Missing Picture, and a film called S21. Um, again, I'm also inspired by what he's, kind of what he's doing in his life. He went to France and uh, went to school there after, and lived there and worked there for a long time after the Khmer Rouge and the Cambodian genocide in the mid to late 70s. And what he's doing now, Riti Pon is a very well-known documentary filmmaker, very well respected, and he could have easily, if he had chosen to, come to a place like Hollywood and made his living here and done his craft here. Instead, he is telling the stories of his country, of his culture, of his past. And, and then recently, he has returned to his homeland of Cambodia to, to both make films and to educate um, a younger generation, essentially the reverse of, of brain drain, which happens can happen with developing countries when um, the educated leave their country and go work elsewhere abroad. I have such massive respect for what Riti Pan is doing in Cambodia. Closer to home, colleagues that I work with inspire me. Um, there are local documentary filmmakers here with similar interests. Netflix, in a way, inspires me. Um, in particular, uh, 2015 and 2016, which really opened up the world of exhaustive, thorough documentary film series. Um, like making of a murderer. So that inspires me, this idea of we don't have to make documentary films that are told in a time frame of an hour and a, an hour or an hour and a half or at most two hours. We can actually get into our docs and spend years doing it, um, really immersing ourselves in the subjects and the subject matter, and we can make a documentary series. That's very, very inspiring and um, wonderful to, to see in the future. Okay, so moving on to our second part of today's podcast, which is about film and video cameras and how to best approach buying or borrowing the gear that you need. As mentioned earlier, the 2000s were a miraculous time for independent filmmaking. The advent of digital technology had changed everything. Suddenly, filmmaking was no longer this impossible dream vocation you know, run by a few privileged people. The whole idea and access to filmmaking had become democratized with digital technology. In some ways, it's only becoming more accessible every day. Most of us have movie cameras right here in our pockets. The power of your phone as an HD camera, it's remarkable and should not be underestimated. Which brings me to this idea of using what you have, knowing that you will have more later on, 
when you're ready for it. In other words, say you want to make a short doc, and it's your first one. Why go broke racking up credit card debt financing the cost of this first short film when you could be using your iPhone to shoot and probably even edit the film within days? I realize the majority of my audience is significantly beyond this, but I'm really just trying to illustrate a point, which is use what you have or borrow what you need while you're learning the ropes of documentary storytelling. Minimize the cost of your mistakes while you can. Don't go signing up for a lease on the new Canon C300 Mark II, the cost of a new car, mind you, and then go broke trying to learn how to use the damn thing. And there's another point here, of course. It's not about the gear as much as it's about the craft. So why not hone and fine-tune your craft using something much more financially manageable? I'll give you an idea by telling you the cameras that I've owned over the past 15 to 20 years. Let's go back to around 1999 when I made my first ever video camera purchase. Um, I don't even remember the model number. It, it was a Panasonic digital video camera, one of the first of its kind. It was, at the time, the world's smallest digital video camera shot on mini DV tapes. I think it was something like the Panasonic AGEZU or... I don't know. Maybe maybe one, one, one of my listeners remembers this camera. At the time, it cost about $1,700. Very significant purchase for me at that time. I used it to shoot a ton of stuff. It was the, it was the perfect camera to really cut my teeth into um, filmmaking on my own or independent filmmaking. You know, it had the base with two XLR slots so you could get, you know, professional audio. You could run your mic into the camera so you had audio and video sunk. Um, I did short films, corporate videos, even made my first digital feature. Years later on, when I would go to do the, the, the Nepal doc, Journey to Kathmandu, um, I shot this on a camera that I bought, this time a Sony, the Sony V1U, um, another tape-based camera. Um, this was HDV. So at the time, HD was out. Um, but I really couldn't quite afford the HD camera. So, of course, HD shoots 1920 by 1080. So I had to go for um, the HDV camera, which was the Sony V1U, which shot 1440 by 1080, if you guys can remember the HDV cameras. Um, very much uh, was built like a video camera. So it operated, you know, with the rocker zoom control, had all the XLR inputs for audio. It was a great camera. I, I loved the feel of it. To this day, it's still one of my favorite cameras to have, to have had my hands on. Um, I, I, you know, I, I really sort of detest the way the video cameras are made today, which are these boxy units. And I kind of blame RED for this, but then Sony would follow, then Panasonic and Canon would follow as well. I'm not into the boxy um, units that you add pieces to. I liked this video camera feel. Um, and the Sony V1U very much gave me that super smooth camera zooms, built-in stabilizers. And, and, and it made sense at the time in the environment, this is important, in the environment that I was shooting in, I, I couldn't really go with a tapeless base technology. The hard copies of tapes were the way to go because in, in, you know, in the mountains in Nepal, carrying a bunch of cards and drives um, was not an appropriate way to go. After Journey to Kathmandu, I sold the V1U and leveraged that to get my next camera. And this is important because um, I would start doing this with cameras, and I, I can't recommend this enough, this idea of maybe going a project-to-project -project basis with your with your gear, in particular your cameras, um, and, then, and then the next project kind of moving up, sort of upgrading it, taking your documentary filmmaking to the next level. I did that here um, after Journey to Kathmandu. I sold my V1U and upgraded to the Canon 7D, 
This is at the time when the DSLRs were were hitting the market and really becoming game changers in terms of cameras and the looks and feels of digital video. The image quality, of course, was superior to any of the video cameras I've been using. Um, however, the, the quality of the image was tempered at least by the lack of audio functioning I found and the lack of zoom control. So you had to run second unit sound. So you had to use these um, external recorders and then sync up the sound with the video because the audio capabilities of DSLRs were pretty, um, uh, I don't know, miserable at best. So I, I upgraded to a Canon 7D. Loved, um, I loved the look of it. Didn't like the feel of the camera, of course. As you know, it's, it was a DSLR. And so it's like a standard camera. So it, it didn't, it was as far from the feel of the video camera as you could go. But again, I leveraged the sale of the V1U. I got some money for that, which enabled me to put money towards this, this Canon 7D. On our current project, Elvis of Cambodia, we upgraded to the Canon C100, which basically took the Canon's DSLR technology and put it into a video camera body. So it, it's still boxy, and I don't quite approve of that, but it's at least more operates more like a video camera. Of course, again, it has XLR inputs now. For all intents and purposes, it's taken that beautiful image of the DSLR, upgraded that, and now you've added a sound package to the unit. So that's the Canon C100. Shot the majority of Elvis of Cambodia with that camera. Now you can see a pattern developing here, but which is buy what you can afford at the time, use it well, and then when you're ready to upgrade, sell the old camera to help buy the new one. Of course, the trick here is timing, because if you don't sell before the technology is practically obsolete, you'll end up sitting on that camera and you won't have made any money to move towards your upgrade, to move towards your next camera. Um, uh, a colleague of mine who re currently operates with a C300 Mark II, because he always seems to he always seems to hold on to his cameras for too long. And so he's never able to sell at a time when he could actually get a decent price. So now he's stuck with like a room full of unwanted and unused cameras. He's got flip cameras, uh, Panasonic DVX100, the HVX200, DSLRs, the original Canon C300. He's kind of sitting on them because he was not able to sort of leverage, sell them at a good time to leverage to his next purchase. Which is also sad because they could be used by someone trying to get into filmmaking. And maybe, maybe I'll gently try and convince him to donate sort of to the film universe. We now, Barong Films, Steph and my company, we own a Canon C300 Mark II. So again, that pattern of upgrading when the time is ready. Just to sort of rehash, don't think that you have to go out and initially buy the best, most amazing camera to become a documentary filmmaker. Use what you have, and then when you're ready, move to the next, next camera. In, in a future episode or episodes, we'll definitely be taking a more thorough look at the types of gear that I or my guests might recommend using when doing documentary films. There's obviously different types of gear for different types of scenarios. The camera and sound package that I'd use for a studio shoot might not be the best gear to have out in the middle of the mountains of Tibet. For now, I'll throw a resource out to you that you can check out. There's a website called desktopdocumentaries.com. You may be familiar with it already. It's, it's a nice resource uh, site for documentary-related um, questions, and, and there's an area in there where people talk about and share sort of gear lists, what they use with sort of budgets that they have, what they use in certain types of environments and surroundings. So again, some pretty cool ideas for gear lists can be found at desktopdocumentaries.com. 
All right, that's today's episode, episode number two of The Documentary Life. I'd like to close by, again, of course, thank you so much for listening. Without you guys, this show, you know, doesn't and won't exist. So, yes, we need more of you. So please spread the gospel of The Documentary Life. Help us become maybe even sort of a support group for one another because it's the networking that we're going to make through this show that's going to help all of us sort of live and lead this idea of a documentary life. I'd also like to remind you, um, if you've downloaded this and haven't downloaded the Perosi, the John Perosi interview, do that now. It's up. It's ready for you to listen to. There's some amazing things that John and I talk about in terms of what it's like shooting documentary films overseas in developing countries and how to operate in these places if you have a family. Super cool stuff there. And I'll, I'll remind you that two more episodes will be up in uh, in one week. One week from today, we'll have two more. One led by myself and one um, a conversation with another filmmaker, Lydia B. Smith, talking about the grassroots campaign of the importance of grassroots campaigning even before you begin shooting your first frame of your film. I will say one more thing. Something that's going to really help the this this the success of this show is feedback from you guys. I'd love to hear what you want to what you want to talk about on the show. Tell me what I can do to to help you guys better, to help educate and, and inspire you guys more. Um, you can do that by emailing me directly uh, at chris at barong films. That's chris at b a r a n g f i l m s dot com. Chris at barong films dot com. You can also visit the website www.thedocumentarylife.com. Please, I encourage you. Another thing that's going to help us is please sign up for the RSS feed or subscribe um, to the email list so I can let you know when the new shows go up. One more thing I'd like to ask, and really it's more of a favor. I provide this this show for free to you guys. And you know, it, I don't have to tell you, it takes it takes quite a bit of time to research, um, to write certain segments, to record it and to edit this thing. Um, I, of course, I do it because I love it and I love to talk about this stuff. And I'm passionate about sharing um, my experiences, other filmmakers' experiences to inspire and educate you guys. But I guess what I might ask um, in return, if I could ask anything, it would be that you you help the success of the for of this show. And there's one really particular way that you can do that in the next few weeks. That's to go to iTunes, subscribe to the show via iTunes, and download the shows. What that does is it drives up the show's numbers a bit, and hopefully to the point to be able to get into a section, a very important section of the podcast area in iTunes called the new and noteworthy section. If we can get into there in the next couple of weeks, that's going to really um, help this show get more listeners. And again, it's a finite space of time. We only have two or three weeks left in which to do this. So please consider going to iTunes, subscribing to the show, and downloading the shows. And then if you have friends that you think would be interested in in the documentary life, please share it with them. And we'll hopefully be able to get into this new and noteworthy section in iTunes. And yeah, that'll really go a long way in helping the success of the show. In advance, thank you for helping me out with this. As you know, I'm pretty new to this podcast thing, so any and all support is massively appreciated. Till next time, I remain your host, Chris G. Parkhurst. So long, thanks for listening, and keep on living your documentary life.